Chapter 11 of Napoleon, a short biography. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Napoleon, a short biography by R. M. Johnston. Chapter 11 Napoleonic Policy, 1806 to 1808. Napoleon's Ambition fall of the germanic empire war and finance tilsit commercial war on england copenhagen junot occupies lisbon continental policy spanish intrigue occupation of madrid joseph bonaparte king of spain it is now time to consider the questions of policy that underlay the wars we have just followed and that soon drove napoleon to new and less fortunate enterprises and first the personal element the man must engage attention his successes his ambitions his plans were immoderate they were the result of an insensate craving to satisfy the selfish appetites of a gigantic intellect the good of others was with napoleon nothing more than a means for attaining some personal end and france was rather the instrument than the object of his achievements to cromwell and to washington even in a way to caesar their country had been a sufficient world of action but bonaparte's imagination ever soared to fresh fields of conquest the corsican lieutenant of artillery had made france his and now stretched his hand over europe had he made europe his nothing can be more certain than that he would thence have risen to the conquest of asia or america he was the embodiment of man struggling to better himself as conceived by utilitarian or darwinian philosophers and the field of ambition in which he strove for existence was only bounded by planetary space nor was his aggressiveness veiled it was the man himself and came out in all his acts in his bulletins and familiar soldiers talk he used the most offensive language towards his opponents sparing not even a woman such as queen louisa of prussia in his diplomatic encounters he showed no greater generosity when his opponent was down he took from him everything he could and even when possible more than was bargained for thus it was after the treaty of pressburg that followed austerlitz by the terms of peace napoleon extorted every cession of territory and of money he could yet he took more in the months that followed having by the terms of the treaty increased the south german states especially bavaria at the expense of austria he subsequently proceeded to form a south and west german body which he called the confederation of the rhine and took under his protectorate bavaria and Württemberg, which he now raised to the rank of kingdoms with westphalia later were the principal among the numerous german states that either through necessity or ambition joined the new confederation but these states had been component parts of the germanic body or germanic holy roman empire of which the head was the emperor francis of Habsburg lorraine the empire had long been a weak and tottering institution this thrust of napoleon overthrew it 
for the emperor francis thereupon issued a declaration announcing the dissolution of the germanic empire and his assumption of the style of francis first hereditary emperor of austria there was another feature of napoleon's system of politics that became strongly emphasized immediately after austerlitz this was that he intended war to be self-supporting heretofore in european politics war had been an abnormal condition entailing abnormal expenditure on the country waging it with this consequence that on a peace armaments were reduced with napoleon all this was changed after austerlitz the french battalions were not reduced by one man the army was to its master what the tool is to the craftsman and he would not admit of its efficiency being diminished at the same time it appeared in every way contrary to napoleon's interests that the abnormal charge for maintaining this great army should be borne by france he consequently entered on the policy of quartering on his enemies if possible otherwise on his allies large bodies of troops which they were called on to maintain and in many cases to pay for seven years eighteen o six to thirteen the greater part of germany thus served as pasture ground and so evil and burdensome was the system that even the placid people of that prosperous country were nearly driven into open rebellion when the victory of friedland forced his last great continental antagonist to confess defeat napoleon touched the summit of his power the days of the struggling consulate appeared long past already after austerlitz a great change had come over him physically he was no longer the lean intriguing corsican struggling to reach the front rank but had filled out and assumed a better satisfied corporal aspect he had now established his equality with the greatest sovereigns of europe eighteen months later at tilsit equality no longer satisfied him and he decided to divide the hegemony of the continent with the tsar providing that sovereign would consent to follow his policy against great britain france and russia could clearly dictate terms for prussia was reduced to a secondary rank while austria alone retained a claim to military power it was on this basis that napoleon framed his policy at tilsit he was prepared to be friendly with russia of alexander he claimed no territory save the little island of corfu all he asked was cooperation in his struggle against england he took pains to charm the czar and succeeded for his fascination could be as great as his invective was brutal alexander agreed to all that napoleon asked of him was content to see peace made at the expense of prussia and was repaid by gaining a free hand to take finland from sweden and various provinces from turkey the czar begged hard for his ex-ally king frederick william but napoleon was bent on crushing the prussian monarchy under his heel by the terms of peace prussia was not only despoiled of much territory but was also charged with an enormous war indemnity pending payment of which french troops were to occupy berlin 
and her most fruitful provinces. So loose were the terms of the treaty that Prussia remained saddled with the French occupation until after the great catastrophe of November to December, 1812. But the point of greatest interest in the agreement arrived at by the two emperors was that which concerned Great Britain. Alexander, glad to pay for Austerlitz and Friedland at so little direct cost, fascinated by the cajoleries of the great captain, agreed to turn against his ancient ally. This part of the negotiations was intended to be kept secret for the present, but the British cabinet secured information and determined to forestall a projected move of the two great continental powers. Instead of accepting a proposal for the mediation of Russia with a view to a general peace, the government of King George sent an expedition to Copenhagen to seize the Danish fleet. This event, September 1807, rendered prospects of a peace with Great Britain even more remote. It ruined Napoleon's naval projects, and it prompted him to a counterstroke at England. Nearly every country of the continent except Sweden and Turkey was now closed to British trade. But in Portugal, her commerce found free outlet, and Napoleon determined as an offset to Copenhagen to close the Portuguese ports to Great Britain. To effect this, military action became necessary, and a small army under General Junot was marched through Spain and occupied Lisbon at the end of November 1807. The Portuguese royal family fled to Brazil. This incursion into Portugal, though it appeared merely a counterstroke for the British seizure of the Danish fleet, was in reality an integral part of a vast scheme which Napoleon's mind had long been maturing. The War of 1805 had drawn him from the Channel. Trafalgar and Copenhagen had deprived him of the naval strength he required, and the invasion of England had faded into the background of possibilities. But, though invasion was no longer possible, the commercial attack was. If Napoleon could no longer march an army to London, he might yet hope to starve and ruin her. His first step towards effecting this was when the conquest of Prussia gave him the power to stretch his hand over the northwestern seaports. In November 1806, he issued the famous Decree of Berlin, whereby it was ordered that no port in the French Empire or its dependencies should receive any ship coming from Great Britain or any of her colonies, that Great Britain herself was in a state of blockade, and that all British goods were seizable wherever found. To this, the British reply was an order in council practically forbidding neutral vessels to trade except through British ports, and later proclaiming all French ports blockaded. Napoleon answered this by declaring all neutral vessels carrying British papers denationalized and seizable. This last decree was in November 1807. The whole force of Napoleon's intellect was now turned towards making this extraordinary economic policy effective. 
he had not only to devise means whereby english cottons and colonial products should not be smuggled through his extensive cordons of custom-house officers but he had to devise means of bringing the whole of the continent into his policy for it was only on the largest scale that it could be effective having secured the czar's promise of cooperation having a strong hold on the coasts of the baltic and north seas his attention was now more closely directed to the south italy was his as far as the strait of messina for the treaty of pressburg had added venetia to the kingdom of italy the papal dominions were virtually under french control the bourbons had been driven from naples where joseph bonaparte was installed king in eighteen o six the treaty of tilsit had given corfu to france and now in the winter of eighteen o seven to o eight napoleon was revolving plans whereby acting from that island and in concert with russia he might arrange to partition turkey and thence launch a franco-russian expedition through persia towards india these schemes were inordinately vast and their execution never passed the initial stages but leaving the eastern for the western basin of the mediterranean there was another detail of the napoleonic plans that required attention but appeared to offer little or no difficulty junot's march to lisbon in the autumn of eighteen o seven has already been noticed portugal had fallen without resistance and the capital had not fired a shot to stop the paltry force that captured it spain appeared as rotten as effete as portugal the king charles the fourth was perhaps the most inept of all bourbon sovereigns and to make matters worse the queen and the favorite godoy were little better than the king in seventeen ninety five spain had abandoned the struggle against the french republic and ever since had dragged by her side in an unconvinced and ineffective alliance but the people and even the minister tired of french dictation and in eighteen o six shortly before jena godoy showed clear indications that he only awaited a favorable opportunity to turn against napoleon the spaniard chose his time badly the corsican played his game more deliberately he wanted the full use of the spanish naval resources against england he viewed with contempt the bourbon occupant of the throne he did not contemplate as possible a serious resistance from spain to the conqueror of austria prussia and russia without showing his hand very clearly without perhaps quite deciding what his precise policy should be he pushed on supporting columns behind junot's army of portugal and gradually established a considerable force in the northern provinces of spain in the early months of eighteen o eight napoleon showed his hand more clearly a large french army was now moving towards madrid and murat was given supreme command this steadily increasing pressure applied by napoleon proved too much for the bourbons dislodged them from their throne there were recriminations between charles the fourth his son ferdinand and his minister godoy popular discontent broke out charles the fourth resigned 
a mob nearly massacred godoy who was barely saved by the french troops murat who had quietly installed himself at madrid declined to recognize ferdinand as king and charles repented his hasty abdication father and son proceeded to bayonne to lay their case before napoleon and he by menace and cajolery obtained from them a renunciation of their rights in his favor spain was now apparently his and he appointed to its throne his brother joseph giving in turn that of naples to murat it was on the fifth of may that the renunciation of his crown by charles the fourth gave napoleon spain with a stroke of the pen but the people of madrid had demonstrated that they were no willing parties to the shameful transaction of their king three days earlier a street insurrection broke out which murat subdued with much trouble and punished severely it was the precursor of a national rising continued for five years and that ended in success france had hitherto conquered by means of a national army she was now to be met with the same arm she had so triumphantly used and abused french troops were now advancing in every direction but a provisional government organized resistance and within a few weeks the imperial arms received the most decisive check they had yet met with south of madrid the french general dupont allowed his communications to be cut and failing to force a passage was compelled to surrender with twenty thousand men at balin july nineteen a few weeks later a similar disaster occurred in portugal a british force under sir arthur wellesley afterwards duke of wellington landed close to lisbon fought and defeated juno's army vimiero august twenty one a capitulation was signed at sintra a few days later whereby the french evacuated portugal these unexpected reverses roused napoleon his army in spain was made up mostly of new levies he now ordered several corps of the grande armee to leave their cantonments in germany for the peninsula other corps were formed in france and hurried to the frontier and napoleon determined to take command in person he joined his troops in november they were then concentrated between the ebro and the pyrenees faced by several spanish armies for the most part poorly drilled insufficiently equipped and miserably led a few rapid strokes to the right and left shattered resistance and napoleon marched irresistibly on madrid which he entered on the fourth of december this first success was elusive there were several peculiarities that rendered campaigning in spain a far more difficult task than in italy or germany the country was poor and troops had to be accompanied by long convoys the peasantry fanaticized by the priests took up arms cut off detached parties and isolated the french columns the mountain ranges of the peninsula ran generally east and west that is across the line of invasion making movements slow and arduous and affording continuous openings for rapid flank attacks up the valleys while napoleon was marching south on madrid 
a British army under Sir John Moore was moving east from Lisbon, and nearly succeeded in striking the French line of communications in the neighborhood of Valladolid. No sooner did Napoleon realize the presence of this new enemy than he turned all his available force towards the British, and, taking command, pushed forward to attack Sir John Moore. It was now winter, and the mountain passes were covered with snow, but the French pressed on rapidly, and the British general, heavily outnumbered, hastily retreated. He eventually reached Coruna after severe losses and hardships, and there succeeded in embarking his army, but lost his life in the fighting. Napoleon had not pursued the British as far as Coruna. Midway, important dispatches had reached him from Paris. Handing over the command to Marshal Soult, he took a few personal attendants, and, galloping as fast as saddle and post-horses could carry him, unexpectedly reached his capital on the 23rd of January, 1809. End of chapter 11 Recording by Linda Johnson